All right, this morning, y'all, we are continuing our sermon series entitled Thrive. Uh, we are looking at the early church. Um, the early church is, is famously known uh, for, for joy, <laughs> abundant joy, right? Uh, shared sacrifice, bold mission, vibrant worship. And that all came in a season of real struggle, right? They didn't just survive. They thrived in a season of challenge. And so in our time of stress and challenge, we are looking again at what made them tick. If we want to experience what they had, we need to do what they did, right? If we want to experience what they had, we need to seek to emulate their example. Now, last week, we, we looked at this key word devoted, right? Where it says that, that the early church disciples were devoted to these key things. We talked about how that word really means that they made them habits, right? They made them daily liturgies, holy habits that they repeated every single day in their lives that were meant to, to both express desire but also form desire, right? They created intentional daily liturgies that centered them on grace and helped them to grow in love. And as we saw last week, there were five things that we've identified in this text that they were devoted to. Right, Just to remind you, it says, and they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, or truth. Right, They were devoted to the fellowship, what we say is community. Right, They were devoted to the breaking of bread, or to worship. They were devoted to the prayers, um, prayer, and they were devoted to attending the temple together daily, mission. Right, These are our five core values, Trailhead Church. These are our five core practices, we've renamed them. Um, and, and, and it says that they were devoted to each of these things. Now, as I shared last week, when I first read Acts chapter 2, I mean, way, way back when, this, this passage jumped out at me um, as, as something incredibly important, right? Because uh, when I read this, man, I could just see that we were getting a glimpse into the heart of one of the most transformative uh, communities that ever existed, right? Out of this community... The entire world was changed, right? And it wasn't because they had political clout or power. It wasn't because they had wealth or influence. It wasn't because they had gained cultural advantage over others. It was because they were unleashed in the power of love, unleashed in the power of grace. And that kind of power transforms. It doesn't control that kind of power transforms. It, it doesn't just seek to, to create a temporary advantage. And it did, right? It did. Today, I want to share with you um, a mistake that I made in teaching this passage early on as I've been wrestling with it this week. In the past, when I taught this passage, I would, I would show a diagram similar to this. This is the pillar model. Um, and, um, and, and, and on this, what I did was simply identify the five core habits, the five core practices that were part of the early church, right? They were devoted to truth or the word or the apostles doctrine. They were devoted to the fellowship or community. They were devoted to worship or, or, um, breaking bread. They were devoted to the prayers and they were devoted to, to mission, right? Engaging the outside community, meeting in the temple daily. And I taught it this way as if it were five individual pillars on which the health of the entire church rested. 
right? A solid, healthy church rests on these five pillars. A, a solid, healthy personal spirituality rests on these pillars. All right, um, having already shown you the, the diagram, I'm now going to tell you, don't bother copying it down because it's wrong, okay? It's wrong. That's how I used to teach it. And as I was wrestling with this, what I realized was that I was in many ways um, misrepresenting how these five values interact and are lived out. And part of that was honestly some cultural assumptions on my part where, where I was simply taking my cultural experience and, and reading it back onto the early church, which is always a danger for us as, as modern biblical readers. Um, and so I want to unpack some of this with you, but, but this diagram of the five pillars reflects a wrong assumption. And the assumption is this, that we simply, if we simply develop these five habits, we will grow in grace. If we simply develop these five habits, we will grow into um, mature spirituality. But as I wrestled with this, it became clear to me that that, that assumption is simply not true. Right? You can have all five habits present and at work in your life and still be profoundly unspiritual. You, you can, y'all remember the Pharisees, right? Those guys in the New Testament, deeply and profoundly religious people, people that had these five habits in their own way, absolutely at work. They were more devoted to it than we ever could be because it was the central passion of their entire life. And yet they're the very people who delivered Jesus up to be crucified right? They had some of the best religious habits any population has ever had, and it did not make them spiritually mature. In fact, it made them dangerous. Dangerous to themselves and dangerous to the world around them. And like them, we could have all five of these individual habits at work in our lives and still be profoundly spiritually unhealthy. I mean, think about it. We could have Daily Bible reading and study habits. We can be people that are, that are reading the Bible every day, studying theology every day, growing in our spiritual acumen every day, getting, getting our head around deep and profound theological truths every day. We, we can be people that, that have community groups that we go to every single week, right? We are there. Every time the community group meets, we're there. We, we can be people who have religious and regular daily habits of prayer. Right? When I first get up in the morning, before I eat, at lunch and dinner, and, and then at night, right? Every time the church doors are open, I'm there. Right? Every time that the church gathers for worship, I'm there. I, I, can, I can serve regularly my community. I can go to the food pantry and serve regularly, and, and I can try to share the gospel with every poor waiter who ever serves me. Right? I can have all five practices at work in my life. I can have all of this. And be super religious and still not be genuinely spiritual. Today, there are a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but they look nothing like the Jesus they claim to follow. Jesus said, you will know they are my disciples by their love for one another. The single critical hallmark virtue that will set aside, that will mark, that will make known to the world a genuine follower of Jesus is love. Right? Love, not power. 
Love, not theological expertise. Love, not moral outrage and self-righteousness. So it is possible to have all five of these habits present and at work in your life and still be far from grace. So I came to see um, two critical problems with this this model that I had been endorsing, this pillar model, this this metaphorical way of presenting the, the five core practices of the early church. First, I was representing them as five unique and different things that needed to be committed to and developed in isolation from one another. In other words, there were five habits, five unique habits that had to be focused on, developed, and committed to individually in isolation from one another. And secondly, this, uh, this model does not clearly tie the practices to their purpose. It indicates that if you have all five of these practices, you will have the pillars necessary for a mature and, and, and solid spirituality, that your church will be healthy, that you'll be healthy, Um, It does not clearly tie the practices to their purpose. Now, to really get to the value of these habits, we need to understand both their purpose and their context. So today we're going to be talking about their purpose. That's kind of what we're digging in today. We're going to be looking at the purpose of these core practices. And and then moving forward in the rest of the series, we're going to be unpacking the context to help us understand how these practices played out in the first century church and how they they play out in our modern experience. So first of all, what do I mean when I say we need to understand the purpose of the practices? I mean this, that the first thing we need to see is that these five habits are not ends in and of themselves. These five habits do not have value in and of themselves. We must see that these that their practice is not their purpose. In other words, the value of Bible study is not Bible study. The value of prayer is not prayer. The value of community is not community. The value of worship is not worship, and the value of mission is not mission, right? We need to see that their practice is not their purpose. In other words, you won't become more spiritual just because you do them. You won't become more spiritual just because you engage them, right? You can pick any core practice, community, right, worship, the word, right? You can grow in the practice. It doesn't mean you're going to grow into spiritual maturity, right? In fact, if you're not aligning the practices with their purpose, you're probably going the opposite direction. If you're not aligning the practices with their purpose, the practices themselves can actually become spiritually destructive in your life because they will feed the flesh instead of grow your walk in the spirit. You will grow in pride. You will grow in self-sufficiency. You will will grow in, in, in perceived moral improvement. Um, but you are not growing in genuine spiritual maturity. The practices must be aligned with their purpose. And what that means is that we need to see that these five holy habits, these five critical practices, are in fact ways 
that we obey the great commandment. We need to recognize that, that the locomotive is the great commandment. The five habits are simply train cars following. We have to be anchored to the great commandment. What's the great commandment? Well, let me show you. This is from Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Um, a lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. So I'll give you the context. Uh, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question. The Sadducees asked Jesus a question. Now a lawyer, um, they're not curious. They're trying to trap him, right? Th this is kind of at the, the end of his ministry. This is at the high point. And um, the religious leaders of the day are becoming incredibly alarmed that, that more and more people are following him, which means more and more people are questioning them and not simply submitting to their authority or perceived authority. Uh, and so they're trying to trap him. And, and uh, so the lawyer, uh, one who is trained in the law, the Mosaic law, um, asks him a question, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This is a trap. Okay, because uh, not surprisingly, in the religious community, there was a live debate about what was the great commandment, right? And it usually broke down, is it, is it part of the moral law or is it part of the behavioral law? Is it, is it, is it this body of laws or this body of laws? And, and no matter how he answered, it was going to give them the leverage necessary to divide his followers. In the end, what they were looking for was, was not necessarily the right answer or the wrong answer. What they were looking for was an opportunity to, to spin it, right? To use it in propagandic purposes to divide his followers so that they could, in, in some way, reduce the momentum of those that were coming and following him. But of course, Jesus, in his brilliance and, and honestly in his humility, actually answers the question in a way they never expected but in a way that actually cuts to the heart of why we exist and how we actually become what we were created to be. He said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, right? So he quotes Deuteronomy chapter six as the first commandment. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, right? And then, he, and then he adds this. He says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is from Leviticus 19, a, a totally different sec separate section of the law. So he's combining the two into one. But he's wedding these two commands in a unique way, right? What, what's the great commandment? Love God and love others. On these two commandments depend all the law, and the prophets. Now, at first, it seems like he's cheating a little bit, right? Because the question was, what's the greatest command? And he was like, well, I'm going to give you two, right? And of course, he's Jesus, so he can do that. Nobody can really complain about that. But, but really, there, there is at the heart of the two commands, love God and love others, one command, isn't there? Love. What's the great command? Love, right? Love God first and foremost. Love God others as an overflow of that love, right? It's, it's really one command. And in this command, Jesus reveals why we were created. Why were we created in the image of God? Why? To love. To be loved by a God of love, and, and from that love, to love him in return, right? John reveals to us that we love God because he first loved us, right? The, the command to love God is a responding command, 
right? What, 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 what's being commanded is respond to the continual, infinite outpouring of the unlimited love of God towards you in responding love toward God. Like, like love God to the same degree He loves you. With all your heart, and with all your mind, and with all your soul, and all your strength. Right? Love God in response to His love for you. And out of that transformative experience, love all the other humans created in the image of God. Right? You love the Creator God. Now love all the other humans created in His image. Friends, enemies, allies, those on the opposition, all of them. Love. Love God in His response to His love for you and love others even as you love yourself. Love. This is why we were created. And this is how we become what we were created to be. Right? This is the purpose of our creation, to love. And this is how we actually become what we were created to be. We once again get sucked into the current of love. Right? Because the current of worldliness is the opposite of love. The current of worldliness is, is us doing things according to our power, in our strength, for our glory, to establish our platform, to, to build our glory, to establish our security, to gain our comfort, right? It's about me. It's about pulling in, gathering, getting more, and keeping what I have. Love is about self-giving. Love calls us to give ourselves to the one that we love for their joy because our joy is increased by their joy. Our riches are increased by their riches. Our, our experience is enriched in their experience. The push of love is always self-giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We are called to love. This is why we were created and this is how we become what we were created to be. Y'all, we weren't created, first and foremost, to be producers. That is one of the aspects of being created in the image of God. We are to produce. But that is an expression and an outgrowth of love, not the primary purpose of creation, right? We weren't created to perform or produce. We weren't created to impress or compete. We were created for love. To be loved by God and to love Him in return and to love each other. This is the great commandment, right? And in this commandment, Jesus reveals profoundly both the purpose of our creation and the pathway for us to become what we were created to be, to be loved by God, to grow in our response to that love, both for God and for others created in his image. And he ends that passage by saying, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. That was a profound statement. A profound statement. Everything else is founded on this. Everything else. Everything else has been revealed. Every other rule, right? Paul goes on to say farther in Romans that, 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 that love is in fact a summation of the law. That, that if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors, you love yourself, you don't need any other rules. There are no other rules necessary. Rules are all about stopping actions that aren't motivated by love. Once you have this, this commandment is the foundation of every other command. This foundational revelation is the foundation of every other revelation. Listen, y'all, if you don't start here, you haven't started yet. 
If you don't start here, you haven't started yet. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how much you know or how much you perform or, or what good deeds you do or, or, or how active you become on campus in ministry or whatever. If you don't start here, you, you honestly haven't started yet. It doesn't matter how much you know or how disciplined you are or how moral you behave. This is why you were created. And this is how you become what you were created to be. And out of this great command comes the great commission. So the great command is the locomotive, right? The great commission is the expression of the great command in our age. What's the great commission? Let me show you. This is Matthew 28. So Jesus is getting ready to, uh, he's already died and risen again. He's in his resurrected form. He's appearing to his disciples and, and he's telling them, go to Jerusalem where I will have one final meeting with you and I will ascend into heaven. And he says this to them. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because of his death and resurrection. He now has the power to forgive and recreate, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The word nations there, remember, is the Greek word for ethnicities, right? Reach out to every ethnic group, cross every racial barrier, move into genuine diversity to bring this message. Go, therefore, make disciples of, of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, I can't preach this entire passage, but but, but let me just, he's getting ready to leave, right? He's getting ready to leave, and he's like, look, y'all, I'm leaving you here for a season. I've already won the war. I already died the death you deserve to die, and I've already been raised in the blessing that, that I can now give you freely by grace, right? When you believe in me, right, I'm your substitute, I took your place in judgment, you can now join me in blessing, right? That's all been won, but I'm going to take off for a little while, and I'm leaving you with a purpose, right? And your purpose is to be disciples who make disciples. That's my Cliff Notes way of summarizing this, to be disciples who make disciples, to be people who are growing in grace, calling people to grace. Be people who are growing in your experience of love, calling people to love, right? Making disciples of all people. Those that, that don't know the message yet, share the message with them for the first time. Those that already know the message, encourage them to grow in that message, right? Discipleship isn't about a single conversion. It is about a continual rediscovery of this incredible gift of love that's been given to us in Christ. Be those who discover and rediscover the incredible gift of grace. Be disciples who make disciples. Right? Jesus' command, the great command, tells us why we exist, to love. The great commission tells us why we were left here in this season waiting for him to return, to be disciples who make disciples. Grow in grace and lead others to engage grace grow in love and encourage others to uh, experience that love. The great commission flows out of the great command. And these two things provide the context that help us see the purpose for the practices. You following me? Why do we engage the word? Why do we engage worship? Why do we engage community? What do we even, how do we even define mission, right? The purpose defines the practices, right? The, right? It's good to study the Bible. 
as long as you're studying it for the right purpose, to love the God revealed in the Bible. Right? It's good to grow in theological knowledge as long as that theological knowledge increasingly leads you into a humble response of love to grace. Otherwise, that Bible study becomes not only helpless to change you, but dangerous because your flesh will use it to puff up your pride. And you will, in the name of God, misrepresent God. Right? If your practice is divorced from its purpose, the practice is not only helpless, it becomes dangerous to your spiritual well-being and to those who have to interact with you. Right? True community. Right? True community is, is um, with, with the diverse community of God's people, is incredibly good. It is, it is vibrant and necessary for us to know and be known, to love and be loved, to, to reveal ourselves and to honor the revealing of others in, in genuine relationship. True community is good. It leads you to love God. And it leads you to love others. But when its purpose is twisted so that it simply becomes an affinity group reflecting me back to me. And I start calling that community. I surround myself with people who look like me and think like me and have the same values as me and reflect me back to me. That not only becomes helpless to help me grow in my response to love and in the experience of grace, it becomes dangerous to the shaping of my soul. Each of the core practices must be seen as finding their direction and their power in their purpose, right? Equipping us to obey the great command, love Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and to help us fulfill the great commission, to be growing in that love and helping others grow in it as well, to be disciples who make disciples. All right, so the first problem with the pillar diagram that I shared with you at the beginning is that it presents the, the five holy habits, the five practices as individual activities that are an end to themselves. That somehow if you develop these five habits, you will have the strength necessary to grow in spiritual maturity. That's the first problem. The second is this, that it leads us to see the practices as separate individual habits. Right? You've got five Separate individual habits you need to develop in your life. Bible study, going to, you know, and being involved in community, which in our context, being part of a community group, uh, joining in worship, um, having, having regular habits of prayer, and having regular habits of, of mission, of engaging the outside world, right? That's a lot of things, y'all. That's a lot of things. How are you doing on that? How are you doing on all five of those? See, when you make them five individual habits, you invariably make them comparative and competitive. In other words, you're already ranking them in your head. Well, I'm a little bit better at this one than that one. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I'm a little bit better at this one than I used to be because I read my Bible now three times a week when I didn't read it at all. So I'm getting better on that one, but I still am not praying. So that one's like down at the bottom of the list. And mission, well, that's probably better left to the professionals. So I don't know about that one, right? Leaving the, 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 seeing it in this way is overwhelming. Because you'll never grow in all five to the same extent. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how disciplined you become. You're never going to become the master of all five habits. And you'll always find some way to blame your lack of joy, spiritual vibrancy, 
um, transformative experience on, on, man, I just, I just need to spend more time in the Word. Man, I just need to be more devoted to prayer. Man, I just need to have a more, more transformative experience of worship. Man, I need to share the gospel more, right? We turn it into, and let's be honest, tiny little self-improvement projects. That if I can just do this better, I will become what I long to be. If I can just grow in this habit and get more discipline, and it's overwhelming because you can't grow in all five in the same way. Y'all, listen to me. What, what if these aren't five separate things? What if these aren't five separate habits? What if they're one? What if they're one? See, the more I studied the experience of the early church and how these practices played out in in dynamic interdependence in their experience, I came to see that, that I had misunderstood these things. Because they were listed as five unique things in the passage, I took them as five unique holy habits or practices that I needed to develop and, and become disciplined with in my life. And, and I missed the dynamic interdependence of how these things came together to create a transformative experience. So this week I came up with a new diagram. Uh, it's not the pillars, and it takes a little bit more explanation than the pillars. Okay? Uh, but let me go ahead and show this, this diagram to you. Um, it's pretty simple, but it's going to take me probably about the next four or five weeks to really unpack. Um, what you're going to see is, is uh, and, and by the way, don't, don't worry about trying to copy it down. It's in your bulletin. And you're like, what bulletin? I didn't get a bulletin. Yes, you did, right? All you have to do is go to the Church Center app and click bulletin. You have a digital bulletin right there on your phone. If, if you want to go out on your computer, go to our, our trailheadonline.org and on the homepage, click bulletin. And it's right there. Okay, you get the announcements, you get the quotes for the week, and you will get this diagram. Okay, it's in your bulletin. Um, you can access it in that way. And let me put another plug in. If, if, if you want a link sent directly to you so that you don't have to go find it, text yeah buddy to 618-266-3210 and we'll help you out okay all right i'm not going to unpack this diagram completely today but what i want to do is is just give you an overview of of why i think this is fundamentally different and fundamentally important Um, we're going to look at each holy habit we're going to look at each spiritual practice in coming weeks and talk about how the interplay um existed in the early church and how it translates into our experience today. But I want you to just notice a few things about the diagram. First of all, the values are no longer individual solitary pillars. Uh, They are, in fact, a series of overlapping circles. Uh, This indicates that they weren't individual discrete activities, individual five individual habits that were meant to be focused on out of interdependence on each other. They overlap each other. They bleed into each other. They feed each other and are interdependent on each other. You cannot have a vibrant experience of one without embedding it in a vibrant experience of all five. In other words, it's in the interdependence of the holy habits, of the, these, these critical practices that we discover their power. Next, I want you to notice that I took two of the values and I put them in the outermost circle. 
the value of community and the value of, of mission. And in fact, I took those two values and I made them one, <laughs> right? They're no longer independent of each other. Uh, it is no longer community and mission. It's community on mission. Um, and that's obviously intentional. You can't have one without the other, not biblically. You can't have biblical community divorced from biblical mission. And you cannot have biblical mission divorced from biblical community. When you try to separate those two things, you will end up with something that is not transformative, that will not unleash the power of grace in your life. Um, if you think about it, what's the great command? Love, right? Can you learn to love without a diverse biblical community? If you just surround yourself with the people you like, who look like you and reflect you back to you, can you really learn to love? No. The only way you grow in love is by fighting to learn to love. The only way to grow in love is in the context of relationships. The only way to obey the great commandment is to actually be in God's holy community, together learning to grow in your responsive love to God. Right? That's why the Bible calls the church the body. Individual members all melded together into a single whole, right? This is why we're told that we are a holy temple being built and being filled by the Spirit of God, right? And, and, and by we are a holy temple, it doesn't mean your body individually. It means us. We are a holy temple, the community of God's people. Right? For us to obey the great commandment, we must be in community. And in order to fulfill the great commission, that community must be on mission to be disciples who make disciples. We can't simply come together in our holy huddles. We can't simply come together to grow in knowledge or to become more self-disciplined or to be self-respectful. or to. We have to actually be a transformative community that is growing in our love for God and moving out in our love for others. That is the context in which transformation takes place. You cannot be a disembodied, vibrantly healthy Christian. You can't be a, a, a solo Christian and be vibrantly healthy. You cannot. You were never designed to thrive apart from being intimately part of the body of Christ, the church. That greater circle is the circle in which all transformation takes place. Right? It's the only way we can obey the great command. It's the only way we can carry out the great commission. Within that context of being a community on mission, we grow in our ability to respond to the love of God by loving God, and we grow in our ability to love others by engaging the word and prayer and worship. And each of those experiences is interdependent on the others. You cannot have a vibrant prayer life divorced from having a genuine worship experience which responds to the Word of God. This dynamic experience of being the people of God, growing together in our love for God and, and for each other, 
is the transformative experience of the early church. Y'all, that's where we're going. That's where I'm going to stop this morning. In coming weeks, we're going to be looking at each of the individual holy habits or core practices in the context of the early church and see how that translates into the context of, of our modern experience. But for this morning, let me just remind you that we were created for a purpose, and it's in pushing into the love of God that we've become what we are created to be, to love even as we are loved. All right, let me pray for us, and then we're going to move into a time of, uh, of sharing communion. Uh, if you're at home, you can go ahead and get your, your communion elements uh, ready, your bread and, and your wine or your juice. If you're here, of course, you have these fancy little packets that are completely sanitary and COVID-free. Let me pray for us, and then we'll share communion. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of grace. I thank you for the gift of your love. I thank you that, that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we are in being invited back to the sanity of why we were created, to recognize that, that the world isn't a place of limited resources where we have to fight to keep what we have and get more, to, to get more glory or to get more security or to get more love and affection, that, that we live in a world of abundance, superabundance. Because the God of the universe is in fact the very embodiment of love and we were created to thrive in that love, to respond to that love, to grow in that love and become free in that love. Lord, awaken our hearts to that incredibly beautiful invitation this morning. And help us, Lord. Because we're not even able to respond in the way we should. Spirit, will you awaken within us a responding love to the outpouring of love that we've received in the person and the work of Jesus. We thank you for him.